Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. My return guest today is Angela Nagel, who uh, inaugurated this podcast just a bit over a year ago um, and is back to discuss a text we both uh, first read a while ago and then um, have reread recently, which is George Orwell's The Road to Wigan Pier. So thanks for uh, being willing to come on again, Angela, and talk to me about this text. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so this is Orwell's, um, it's his second nonfiction book, and I think his fourth book altogether. Um, So it kind of comes in the middle of his uh, productive career. It's published in 1937. And it, just to give a broad overview, um, it's essentially a kind of um, report on the conditions of um, a a region of the north of England, um, you know, that is at the time heavily industrialized, um, you know, central area for coal mining, and is also, you know, this is still the Great Depression, so is also just kind of a um, a place where various kinds of social crises are, are concentrated at the time. So he is commissioned by the left book club to, uh, to go and um, write this report. In some ways it, it's a continuation and he sort of makes this explicit of um, his previous nonfiction book um, down and out in Paris and London and, um, you know, it's in a sense, a kind of book about slumming and, um, you know, it's very much about his own class status as what he calls a member of the lower upper middle class and his, um, you know, his, his experience as a sort of both outside observer and somebody who's engaged in this kind of ethnographic immersion in these um, these um, poor and working class uh, areas and communities. So that's just kind of a general, you know, introduction to this text for those who are unfamiliar. Um, just to start, you know, how was your um, experience of reading this, and perhaps how did it compare to your earlier experience of it? Yeah, I was trying to remember what age I might have been when I first read it. And I I dread to think, I think it was actually a very long time ago. Uh, And I, it, it clearly had an impact on me because when I was reading it again, I thought, oh, I, I kind of sound like this sometimes, you know, like it, it must have imprinted itself on me in some way, particularly the second part, you know, where he, he's sort of doing more analysis. Um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, it's a theme uh, also in kind of different essays he's written and stuff like that. Like I remember one which is sort of about why it is that the right is able to write these exciting heroic boys books. 
and he was sort of comically like imagining what a leftist one would look like you know and how terrible it would be and um because it would just be a tract you know um and yeah so that kind of like that that endless question that sort of plagued me for so long which is like why is it that you know or, or what do you do when like the idea of socialism is one thing but then the the socialists are another right and you can't have you can't allow socialists to have power because that would be terrible but you can't actually but but you don't necessarily your view of the idea of socialism itself hasn't changed you know um and so that's kind of like the great stuff that he gets into in the second part but then even in the observation uh that was really excellent as well and uh, you know, it, it used to really bug uh, Christopher Hitchens that every time somebody wanted to attack Orwell on the left, they would say, oh, he said that the working class were smelly <laughs> because of this book. But he's just describing really honestly, like he's not trying to romanticize anyone or put anyone down. He's just he's just very honestly describing what he sees. And he's also honest about his own class position, which is that um, he's kind of aware in this really tumultuous time in British history, in European history, he knows that like the, the place that he and people like him are in, they're, they're very much in danger of falling downward. Um, and at one point, I think he says something like, you know, I could, if the worst should happen, like I could survive a lot of, you know, hard labor jobs. But the one thing I would that would kill me is a coal miner's job, you know. So he, he's just being totally honest, um, which is very refreshing in and of itself, right? Because leftists are almost always uh, lying in some way, right? They're almost always uh, using a moral category to kind of rationalize a selfish desire, which we all have. Uh, but instead of being honest about them, they have to they have to kind of use these, um, you know, the, these category, moral categories and stuff to conceal like what they really feel. Whereas he's just describing things exactly as he sees them. Um, he's trying to make completely real and authentic observations. Like I love the bit where he says um, that the. The, the the worst landlord the most tyrannical landlord is actually a poor landlord you know and in the same way like an undercapitalized small business can be way worse to work for than a, a big world-spanning corporation you know yeah um so he I mean, just uh, for a bit further background, the first half of this, again, is sort of the, um, you know, his sort of reporting on the conditions of what he sees in these areas. So we could think of this part of the book as kind of in the tradition of Engels, um, you know, condition of the working class in England, and perhaps a, um, you know, a later addition to this um is uh, E.P. Thompson's um, The Making of the English Working Class. And um, he, so yeah, I mean, he's, but he's really, um, you know, in the first part, he's not really theorizing. He's, mm. he's really just kind of observing and reporting. Um, but he does have these kind of, um, you know, he, he, 
he is clearly um, avoiding any kind of romanticization of of this situation as far as possible, right? He's he's trying to. I mean, and I think he, particularly in the second part, you know, he he talks about, and I think this has an explicit purpose, which is that you know he talks about basically the way that sort of standard middle-class socialists and you know he makes sure that he is a middle-class socialist but you know that that their entire way of talking about the people whose interests they claim to be fighting for is this kind of mystified you know romanticized fantasy right yeah and so he's clearly just um trying to you know fight against that tendency as much as possible um and you know he basically in the first part is is just sort of um you know going around observing what he sees and also commenting on his own you know and and i guess the other point about like yeah he says i mean this whole comment about this the sort of smell is you know also couched within the whole question of how i mean of the class system in england and how you know, basically part of what he's arguing is that, you know, those who would, who would fault him for saying that are themselves just, you know, completely lying to themselves and us. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he, ha he has some great lines about, you know, what, um, if you sort of had, um, you know, what, what most of these people um, who claim to be Bolsheviks or whatever, like, you know, that, that they wouldn't, um, th that this lifestyle would be completely, um, you know, impossible for them to adopt, mm, right? Mm. Um, so anyway, the first part is is largely this kind of observation. The second part is where he, you know, addresses this question, which you brought up of, you know, why is socialism not um, gaining traction among the people who, mm. you know, it claims to be on behalf of? And... Um, you know, essentially among the people who he, um, who he's been, who he's been sort of observing and describing in the first part. Um, so, you know, I think another thing that's striking about the first part is just, it has this really, you know, it has this quality of a kind of astonishment at, you know, the, the sort of horrifying, um, the the kind of horrifying and abject um kind of refuse that the sort of churn of the of capitalist production is creating right that he's mm. he's kind of interested in it as this vast machine that's just kind of churning out all of this hideous and horrifying um you know just uh, i mean essentially kind of human refuse which which are who are just left to kind of fend for themselves in in the best way possible and so there there's you know i think a an interesting um you know he part of what he's objecting to is the which i think is is the sort of sheer irrationality or apparent irrationality of the system right mm. so it's 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 more a kind of um you know, he, he doesn't, um, he doesn't engage in any kind of sentimental, um, or, or sort of pitying, um, sort of observation of, of the, the people who are sort of caught up in this disaster, but instead he's, it, it seems to me what he's kind of expressing is just this kind of sheer astonishment at the, the kind of 
horrifying monstrosity that this the system is generating on a daily basis. Mm. I don't know if that was sort of how you and so you know in a sense that this relates to how he kind of frames the appeal of socialism almost more as a kind of um, intellectual intellectually appealing um, system because it 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 promises to do away with the sheer kind of irrational cruelty and sadism of the the system that he's observing if that I don't know if that that was sort of how you read it but yeah I think so um and the um I mean the thing is a lot of that what he's describing is really the product of industrial society you know I mean you know and and whether countries industrialized under officially under the name of capitalism or Marxism. I mean, they both had these kinds of conditions, in fact, you know, because it's, there is a stage of development that kind of necessitates it to some degree. Um, Certainly the kind of, you know, the the getting, just getting coal out of the ground, you know, whether, whether like capitalists or Bolsheviks are in charge, the coal has to come up, you know, um so yeah i mean and and you know there's always been that kind of um there's always been that kind of more romantic um like streak in english socialism i think you know um think of like the diggers or you know all that kind of stuff um which is something different from the marxist tradition you know, so I think that's always there in when you read English socialists, like there is a kind of horror at industrial society that to me is something separate. Um, it, you know, it maybe has more of a romantic root than a Marxian one, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think even, you know, I mentioned E.P. Thompson before, but um, I think there's something of that in his uh, his sort of account as well. Um, I mean, here's a passage that I think is one, you know, it kind of expresses what I was trying to Mm. articulate about it. Um, so he says it is no use that saying that people like the Brookers. So the Brookers are the, the sort of landlords of this lodging house that he lives in, um, are just disgusting and trying to put them out of mind for they exist in the tens and hundreds of thousands. They're one of the characteristic byproducts of the modern world. You cannot disregard them if you accept the civilization that produced them. For this is, a, this is part, at least, of what industrialism has done for us. Columbus sailed the Atlantic. The first steam engines tottered into motion. The British squares stood firm under the French guns at Waterloo. The one-eyed scoundrels of the 19th century praised God and filled their pockets. And this is where it all led, to labyrinthine slums and dark back kitchens with sickly, aging people creeping around and around them like black beetles. It is a kind of duty to see and smell such places now and again especially smell them lest you should forget that they exist, though perhaps it is better not to stay too long. So I think that's, you know, it's a good passage for just kind of capturing what, how he yeah. understands what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I mean, it's, um, I guess it's also that question that people always have of like about modern society, like, is this worth it? You know, because on the one hand we know that, you know, industrialization like got us out of the Malthusian trap and it kind of 
enabled all this great wealth like in time, but it has all these costs along the way. And ultimately, you know, it, it, it may it may just have a natural endpoint, which will have a cost as well. You know, when you look at even today, like in England, if you look at a place that has been deindustrialized, you can't help but have the thought of like, was this worth it? You know, it, maybe maybe this was a mistake. Like I understand that romantic way of thinking, you know, um, and yeah, so that's definitely in there in there too, I think. And he has a another interesting section related to this. You know, his his kind of um, revulsion at the sheer irrationality is one that, you know, really um, it's interesting to see a, a point like this made as early as as this, um, mm. which, again, is 1937. So he says 20 million people are underfed, but literally everyone in England has access to a radio. What we have lost in food, we have gained in electricity. Whole sections of the working class who have been plundered of all they really need are being compensated in part by cheap luxuries, which mitigate the surface of life. Do you consider all this desirable? No, I don't. But it may be the, that the psychological adjustment which the working classes are visibly making is the best they could make in the circumstances. They have neither turned revolutionary nor lost their self-respect. Merely they have kept their tempers and settled down to make the best of things on a fish and chip standard. The alternative would be God knows what continued agonies of despair. Or it might be attempted insurrections, which in a strongly governed country like England could only lead to futile massacres and a regime of savage repression. Mm. So, and then, you know, of course, the post-war development of cheap luxuries has been a very fortunate thing for our rulers. Um, it is quite likely the fish and chips, art silk stockings, tint salmon, cut price chocolate, the movies, the radio, strong tea, and the football pools have between them averted revolution. <laughs> Therefore, we are so sometimes told that the whole thing is an astute maneuver by the governing class, a sort of bread and circuses business to hold the unemployed down. What I've seen of our governing class does not convince me that they have that much intelligence. The whole thing has happened, but by an unconscious process. The quite natural interaction between the manufacturer's need for a market and the need of half-starved people for cheap palliatives. Yeah, so, that's great. I mean, that still, that still holds. Yeah, and it's so, you know, it again it it's it's just stunning to see that kind of those kind of observations, which, you know, I, I feel like I've been sort of hearing versions of that <clears throat> from, you know, people on the left my whole life, pretty much. Um mm. and you know, you can think about how <clears throat> um, you know, on one hand, I remember this being like a standard sort of conservative argument mm. a while ago that, you know, it's like well, how can there be poverty if, in America if everybody has a flat screen TV or yeah, <laughs> like everyone yeah, has a cell yeah. phone or things like that? Yeah. Uh, and so obviously on one hand, that's, um, you know, <clears throat> unsatisfying in its way. Um, but, you know, then uh, there's kind of on one hand this, I mean, and I, I think there you have him, again, trying to contend with the... Um, the failure of a kind of revolutionary consciousness to take hold mm. um, in a way that also kind of anticipates maybe things like the Frankfurt school. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
and you know much more familiar things ideas that became much more familiar in the post-war period um you know and that a great deal of thought went into and it seems like he just kind of offhandedly <laughs> develops a pretty similar analysis just in those couple of paragraphs yeah yeah um and you know it also makes me think um that um if you think about like you know why the this whole question that he's he's considering of like the the kind of person okay so you have this problem right there is this irrationality in the system we can't provide the basics but we can't but the system can provide um you know the radios and things like that uh and today it might you know it would be like you know, cheap consumer goods are everywhere, but we, we, we still to this day cannot master the basics of life, like get, make sure that everyone has the basics of life. Um, and, uh, but then the, here's the problem, right? A, a pl- an intelligent sort of mind that is a planning mind, you know, thinks, well, I could fix this. <laughs> you know, if we rationally planned this, then it would be fixable. But then he kind of goes on to talk about the problem of the fact that the the rational planning mind that is attracted to that prospect is destructive and tyrannical nine times out of 10 by its nature. So then you're stuck in this problem. And he talks about how um, the, the the kind of, the, the socialist rational planning mind sort of sees the world as a chessboard, you know, and, and they're, they're frustrated at the untidiness of reality, you know, and they think it's, it can't be right that the, these, all of these radios exist, but the, but food and housing, you know, is, is in short supply. Um, and, uh, and so he, he, he can see the problem with empowering the planning mind it, to order the world like a chessboard in the way that it wants, but then can also see why this irrationality is a problem. And so that just leaves you with the dilemma. What do you do with that problem? Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is where, you know, as I was saying before, it's like he really frames this in terms of his, his kind of horrified astonishment at the sheer irrationality of the system um, but then, as you say, he has this kind of critique of the way that, you know, the, again, the planning mind is drawn to um, socialism and related doctrines um, because it, you know, um, because it gravitates towards this, um, this need to kind of tidy things up um, and to, you know, essentially make the world match some kind of intellectual blueprint Um, Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I think that's a deep sort of tension in the book because he doesn't, um, you know, in a sense, he he doesn't renounce this kind of impulse in himself Mm. entirely. Um, But he also has a very strong um, critique of it. Yeah, because the thing is, it's not enough to say, okay, well, just live with the irrationality, like just accept it, you know, because it actually is wrong you know and so but the same the two things can be true at once that's the system is wrong but the people who are gathering to fix it are um you know ha- have this problem within them as well have this um 
kind of pitiless like uh, way of wanting to move people around to so that the world will conform to the image in their minds of a rationally ordered world. Yeah, um, there's a bit, I just have a quote here. Let me see. Um, oh yeah, so there's a bit, I mean, this is kind of like the, the best uh, example of the the thing that we're talking about. Um, so he, he kind of has to start off. This is a funny thing, right? Uh, you know the way, well, I, I don't do this anymore, but for many years I sort of wasted time. I, I still see so, some people doing this where they have to say, now I'm not saying, like they have to say like, this is why I'm doing this critique for socialism, guys, right? <laughs> I'm trying to make it better. I'm trying to make the socialist movement better. You know, and he, he has to spell that out in, in the vain hope that they won't uh, all get mad at him for saying these things, you know, but of course they do anyway. Um, so he starts with that and he explains that he's going to be devil's advocate. Um, and he says, anything is relevant, which helps to make clear why socialism is not accepted. Uh, and he says, and please notice that I'm arguing for socialism, not against it. Uh, but for the moment, I am devil's advocate. Um, so he says, I'm making out a case for what sort of person who is in sympathy with the fundamental aims of socialism, but who has, uh, who has the brains to see that socialism would, uh, quote unquote, work, but who in practice always takes to flight when socialism is mentioned. Question a person of this type and you will often get the semi-frivolous answer, I don't object to socialism, but I do object to socialists. Logically, it is a poor argument, but it carries weight with many people. As with the Christian religion, the worst advertisement for socialism is its adherence. And uh, so like, that's like, to me, that's a great way of approaching this because he's not like a lot of, I think a lot of the time, so if you become disgusted by the socialists, then it's very reasonable to react to that by, by, uh, um, rejecting socialism but he's sort of saying actually you're still left with this problem which is that the problems in society that would lead one to uh, a socialist like analysis uh or you know are, still exist you know so it, it isn't enough to just sort of say oh well then you just become apolitical or something like that you know or, or you just reject the whole thing you're still left with you're still left with the reality of saying like, of having to answer like, what are you for? You know, what, what is the problem and what, what are you advocating? So what do you do if, if the answer to that question is the same as it used to be? If you still say, I still see the same problems and I still think the answer is something that you might describe as socialism broadly conceived, but I can't, but I'm stuck because I can see the 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 problems with that that actually most people can see, um, I, and I think that's so. His position is basically, I think, the most common one, right? Um, like nobody wants lower wages, right? And nobody wants to not be able to afford housing and healthcare and things like that. But giving power to these people is also a nightmarish prospect, and he just lets you sort of sit with that contradiction instead of trying to resolve it. Um, he just leaves us with that 
problem that's like an unsolvable problem yeah and you know it's interesting in light of all this that he you know there was a sort of um checkered publication history because essentially he you know he wrote the the first part which was you know essentially this kind of brutal um sort of observational report on you know the conditions of of people in and around um this town in the north of england and um you know that part was sort of considered you know his publisher which again was the left book club um thought that was okay but when he gets into this kind of ruthless um, criticism of the you know socialism and socialists as they exist you know he he really um and he you know as you said he frames it explicitly as sort of devil's advocate type position the goal of which is to kind of improve the the prospects of the movement but nevertheless his publisher did not like that section um mm. and basically initially asked him as i recall to remove it and wanted to just publish the first part and then he refused on that so basically the publisher added a sort of critical forward in which he you know sort of scolded <laughs> scolded orwell for his um you know for, for his uh, unfortunate you know ideological deviations and so on <laughs> Um, so you know this is uh perhaps perhaps an experience you might relate to <laughs> yeah it's so funny how nothing changes like and you can actually see you know in the like i i i read some kind of um extracts from reviews like positive and negative responses to it you know and you can just see like um one of them said something like he didn't even define socialism, you know, that kind of thing <laughs> that like retreat into pedantry that they do when you're actually trying to grapple with something that's really important, you know, and they won't answer the, they, they won't even allow the question, the, the profound question to be discussed. And so they, they sort of loftily like dismiss the whole thing because, Oh, Whereas you didn't define socialism, like that's just such an enraging response, but it's exactly what they do now still, you know? Um, and yeah, the other kind of thing of like, oh, the first bit shows that he's one of us and he's a good person, but the second bit, it's not acceptable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's, it's really remarkable. And I mean, this, so I guess, you know, when I when I was rereading this, I did um, think of some things you've written and you did say earlier on in our discussion that you um, you felt like maybe you had been somewhat influenced by it, by this text in ways you maybe hadn't noticed. Um, but anyway, I appreciate this. I don't know if this passage, I mean, this passage, maybe you reminded me a little bit of certain things you've written, but um so the first thing that must strike any outside observer is that socialism is in its developed form is a theory confined entirely to the middle class. The typical socialist is not, as tremulous old ladies imagine, a ferocious looking working man with greasy overalls and a raucous voice. He is either a youth, youthful snob Bolshevik who in five years time <laughs> will quite probably have made a wealthy marriage and been converted to Roman Catholicism. <laughs> or still more typically, and by the way, I mean, Another thing, just in terms of like weird online stuff, 
you know, it's he keeps bringing up this um, this, you know, that basically uh, you could you sort of either you, you know, you become a socialist or a Bolshevik and then later you convert to Catholicism or, yeah. you know, if you're of this class, you either you either become a socialist or you convert to Catholicism. So, you know, sounds rather. Uh, familiar yeah, familiar. Yeah. Years. But anyway, um or still more typically, a prim little man with a white collar job, usually a secret teetotaler, and often, <laughs> often with vegetarian leanings, with a history of nonconformity behind him, and above all, with the social position which he has no intention of forfeiting. This last type is surprisingly common in socialist circles of every shade. It has perhaps been taken over en bloc from the old liberal party. In addition to this, there's the horrible, really disquieting prevalence of cranks wherever socialists <laughs> are gathered together. One sometimes gets the impression that the mere words socialism and communism draw towards them with magnetic force every fruit juice drinker, nudist, sandal wearer, sex maniac, Quaker, nature cure, quack, pacifist, and feminist in England. <laughs> <laughs> Um, one day this summer, I was riding through Letchworth when the bus stopped and two dreadful looking old men got onto it. They were both about 60, both very short, pink and chubby, and both hatless. One of them was obscenely bald. The other had long gray hair bobbed in the Lloyd George style. They were dressed in pistachio colored shirts and khaki shorts to, to, into which their huge bottoms were crammed so tightly you could study every <laughs> dimple. <laughs> Their appearance created a mild stir of horror on top of the bus. The man next to me, a commercial tra traveler, I should say, glanced at me, at them, and then back at me and murmured, socialists, as he should say, <laughs> red Indians. He was probably right. The ILP were holding their summer school at Letchworth. The point <laughs> to him, as an ordinary man, a crank meant a socialist, and a socialist meant a crank. Any socialist, he probably felt, could be counted on to have something eccentric about him. And some such notion exists even among socialists themselves. For instance, I have a prospectus from another summer school which states its terms per week and asks me to say whether my diet is ordinary or vegetarian. They take it for granted, you see, that it is necessary to ask this question. This kind of thing is by itself <laughs> to alienate plenty of decent people. And their instinct is perfectly sound for the food crank is by definition a person willing to cut himself off from human society in hopes of adding five years onto the life of his carcass. That is a person out of touch with common humanity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, no, it's absolutely hilarious. I mean, the analysis is just so funny. And, you know, it's, um, you know, it's, I, I guess, you know, in some ways, I, I suppose one thing we might say about this is that, um, <clears throat> You know, there's often this idea that certain critiques, you know, you and others have made of the left in recent years are, you know, specific to this maybe kind of post-Cold War, you know, left in the absence of any kind of, um, you know, uh, worker, you know, labor mobilization or, um, you know, rootedness and unions or things like that. But, you know, this, this would all suggest that um, the history goes back quite a bit further. Yeah, I had that thought too, you know, because we're always trying to say, okay, where, where did it all go wrong, right? Uh, and the, the first thought is, some people go, oh, it was Occupy Wall Street. 
but then okay that's clearly not convincing so the obvious point is 68 you know but no the more you look back into it the more you see these are archetypes almost you know uh and that that kind of priestly personality is what you're actually dealing with that's why they go seamlessly from socialism to catholicism um and they're they're like this disembodied brain that wants to that is full of like rage <laughs> and they and, and they're they're totally disturbed by the untidiness of the world and the irrationality of the world and they also have a kind of vengeful rage against someone you know that they want to they want to use uh their mastery of moral concepts to kind of dominate others they can't physically dominate the world so because they're not like you know they're not like the warrior type or whatever so they have to they have to take the longer view and, and dominate the world through ideas um which is actually a very successful method of domination because we are all trapped in the concepts that people like this created totally trapped like a, a um you know even if you look like the at this silly joe rogan thing right uh that's kind of an example right like you know in the world of like mma or something like that joe rogan is a person who has status and who sort of belongs and who you know he, he th like makes sense and thrives in that world but when you kind of step into this arena that is in which the 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 disembodied brain <laughs> priestly concept creators have supreme power they can just get rid of you no problem even if they are totally uncharismatic disgusting to most people um they will sit in their corner and and dominate the world through their concepts you know for a thousand years maybe uh and so th this is a type you know this is like a nietzschean kind of theme as well like this is a a type of person who will always be with us you know and and the reason that they can seamless just as they can seamlessly go from um you know trotskyism to to like uh the catholic church it's it's because they're the same type of person that's why i think like that idea of like the brahmin or the priest or the commissar as this the, this universal type i think is very is a very good way of seeing things because you start to see i guess like this very powerful motivation within them you know uh that that will always be with us and you can only manage them to some degree and and also that it's not just about socialism you know like even because you know those types of people would find something else you know if they were in different historical circumstances and that's why they can fixate into food quack stuff or religion you know and all these other things um but that still leaves you then with the political problem of what to you know what to do about this and i mean I, I this also i mean since you brought up the rogan thing i mean another point i think is relevant here is um <clears throat> the tech industry as i mean so 
I mean, and you know, you you've you've sort of written about the the political um, effects of the the sort of rise of big tech, but basically, what you have um, early on is this. I mean, so you know, a couple of things that are interesting here. You know, another sort of transition that occurred was you had the sort of post sixty eight um, Californian, um, you know, sort of counterculture migrate into the tech industry, right? So mm-hmm. that, you know, so, I mean, and so it's a complicated picture because on one hand you had, um, you had this kind of libertarian spirit, um, which, you know, has largely been kind of drummed out um, at, at this point, but, it, but you did also have all of these kind of subcultural um, <clears throat> um, values and ideas kind of um, migrate into that sphere. So, you know, as this book called um, From Counterculture to Cyberculture discusses. Um, and so, but, but, you know, what's interesting now is that you have, you know, basically this vast, uh, you know, the tech industry has this kind of vast sort of middle management class within it, mm. which is, I mean, and, and so I think this you know, there's some sort of genealogy here, but, but I think, you know, this class is sort of to be distinguished from the kind of freewheeling sort of founder class of the earlier phase of the tech industry, um, because they're basically, you know, managers and bureaucrats, right? Mm. And so when you have a huge amount of sort of cultural and political life, um, having transferred onto these platforms, you know, one thing that happens is you have these people of this kind of priestly um, <laughs> mentality that you've been describing, um, you know, have a, have a huge role within this industry, right? And so that's where you get basically um, this, uh, you know, the, the, the impulse to sort of deplatform and um, sort of crack down on all of these platforms comes from, often comes from within these companies because they have this kind of um, this sort of, you know, sub-managerial class within them, right. That, that demands all of these things. And that's also been the case with media, right. That it, often, if you look at what ha- what's happened at, you know, various legacy media outlets, it's like the people who are sort of revolting against the sort of older values of journalism um, are are often the people who work in the sort of tech on the tech side of things. Mm. So anyway, it's you know, it, it, I think I think one thing we've seen is basically that um, you know the the rise of the the tech industry and the sort of transfer of so much onto these platforms has sort of led to a migration of exactly this sort of person into these sorts of roles. Which which gives them a kind of leverage within the the sort of information economy, right? To mm. to enforce this kind of um, you know to enforce enforce their vision of of you know the sort of I mean to to enforce their kind of purity codes and and so on. Mm. So I don't yeah, know. If that- no, that's interesting. I mean, I guess it's just again, it's that it's the type, right? Of I think I remember Tucker Carlson saying that, you know, like most people that, that like th- there are people 
in I think he said like in apartments in Brooklyn who are who lose sleep over the idea that somebody somewhere in the country is having a wrong thought you know whereas like the vast majority of people would just never conceive of such a thing you know but the problem is that the people who do have that drive within them uh are in power terms worth a thousand people in one you know because they they will call up the person's boss, you know, uh, and they will they they will do more pol- activism and political pressure uh, in in one lifetime than a thousand or many thousand regular people will do, which is almost none. Um, and the thought of those people having this kind of supreme power is absolutely terrifying. Um, and it's not just like, I don't just mean that in a, in a sense, in the sense of like, oh, big government or like giving the state too much power or something like that. It's more that, um, it's more, I guess, the, the dark vengeful side of it, you know, that is so troubling and, and yeah, I mean, they're just as happy. Those people are just as happy being in the bureaucracy of a private company as they would be in a socialist like government or something like that, you know? Um, and, and like, how do you stop those people from getting into those positions? Because they are naturally drawn to those priestly roles. And in many cases, I mean, one thing I've started thinking a lot recently is like on this whole question, <clears throat> because if, if you look at, if if you see the behavior and the character and the bad character of socialists, and then you you extrapolate from that that socialism is wrong or that it's just pointless to say to talk about it at all in the abstract, because in reality the actually existing socialists are like this, and so you're going to be putting them in power, and there's no way around that. Um, and so you take from that that the th- that the theory is wrong or that it's just irrelevant or whatever. Well, the problem with that is that you know, like an idea, an abstract idea, can be anything. Like look, like in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party, socialism is like a civilizational state. In the hands of the Western left. Socialism is the exact opposite of that. It's 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 like um, an anti-civilizational movement. You know, it it sees civilizational restrictions on the individual will as oppression. So, so really, you could say like, you know, basically, it's it, there's something else at work that abstract ideologies basically are irrelevant you know like and and religions too like it's the people who bend the ideas to their will and to their spirit you know and so if the chinese had a different system or it had a different name it would probably take on the same form you know because it's an expression of people who and people and a leadership who have a kind of um who have that like civilizational drive, you know? Um, And I think that maybe our problem is that 
because I think that if you're a sort of brainy type of person, you you see this you see this thing that we've witnessed right the disaster of how horrible socialists are and everything right and so then you you think well okay now i have to now i have to um reject the idea and the ideal because of the the fact that you simply cannot get around this problem of these terrible people um but i increasingly think that basically you know, it's it's wrong to then go retreat into abstractions and say, okay, well, maybe if I could just come up with the ideal theory, you know, then it would fix this problem. Like, what if you said, okay, we're going to have a movement that's like a conservative socialism, right? Like that has, you know, a history in Britain as well. That would fix the the radical liberals, right? They would go away and you would get them out of your movement and then you would have then you you just get the theory right and it will work. But I actually think this just isn't true. And it's just ultimately a waste of time uh, because the it's the spirit of the people that is wrong. <laughs> you know? And no matter what they do, it, no matter they it doesn't matter what religion they take on, what ideology they take on, the the same problem will appear, you know, because if it was the theory, then why is it that it, it's an anti-civilizational force in the West and it's a pro-civilizational force in China, you know? So that's kind of what I'm thinking about now, you know, that's the main thing I'm sort of preoccupied with. And I, again, like, I don't know how to, I don't know how people become, um, how they manifest that kind of uh, like thumos or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, we know the Renaissance happened, right? Like people can manifest these things. Um, it's still mysterious to me how, <laughs> but I just think that if you, if that's wrong, if you are, if you are kind of spiritually disordered, then everything you do will be wrong. You can call it socialism. You can call it um, liberalism. You can call it you know, nationalism, whatever, it will all take on this disordered form because you have something, there is something fundamental there that abstract ideology does not cover, you know, that is wrong. Yeah. And I think, you know, this, I mean, it goes back to the, the idea that, you know, the, the person who criticized Orwell for not defining socialism, um, you know, I think in some ways he's, uh, throughout this book, he is extremely suspicious of of theory, basically, mm. and of of any kind of, you know, of uh, I mean, he's really you know explicitly kind of rejecting sort of Marxist language. Um, yeah. he's so, you know, I think, you know, in some sense, his um, his his concern seems to be similar. Um, and and also again, he's attuned to the ways that these these types of people who are drawn to this kind of movement, you know, may then drift away from it and become Catholics or whatever. So, <clears throat> yeah, he's, you know, fundamentally he's more interested in looking at the problem. Um, mm. And, you know, I think he's on one hand, as I said, you know, explicitly kind of, you know, his his interest in the problem is one of a kind of, you know, astonished horror at the, the sheer irrationality of, of this system and the sort of um, horrifying byproducts that it 
it creates um, and and sort of what it what it subjects human beings to and turns them into. Um, but at the same time, he's also suspicious of you know solutions that take the form of uh, a kind of you know again uh, uh, creating an intellectual blueprint that if only it could be imposed on the world then it, it could make all of this go away mm. um, I mean another thing that I, another section of it that's really interesting so you know he's he's trying to understand why people are not drawn to socialism right one reason is because of the, the socialists um, right <laughs> who he you know um who he describes, you know, in the terms I just read out. But but then the other point, the other big point that he makes is that, um, and I think this is something that, you know, for a while I remember like 10 or 15 years ago, in a way being struck by the absence or the disappearance of this kind of, um, this kind of way of thinking, which is, you know, th this kind of um, techno, you know, high-tech futurism, right? Which he associates with H.G. Wells, you know, in the in in his period, is kind of the most um, the the best known kind of expositor of of this version of socialism, which is about um, you know advancing technology to the point that it creates a society of material abundance, right? And that is you know that is pretty baked into you know most varieties of socialism, right? This mm. this notion of that that um, you know, that the technology itself has to advance to the point where it can produce an abundance that allows for all needs, that for all human needs to be met, right? Mm. So, you know, in a way, this is in, in some sense kind of more interesting and more, you know, has more even deeper kind of internal tensions in relation to his concerns because, you know, than his, his kind of disgust for the the other middle-class socialists, you know, because in some sense he's, you know, as those passages I was pointing out before, you know, he's kind of disgusted with the way that the society is producing, you know, radios and, um, and things like that, but not, you know, just like meeting people's basic needs. Right. But then he also kind of argues that, this idea of a, a high-tech utopia of, of sort of, um, you know, a, a society of, of um, fully realized technological um, advancement that produces sort of infinite abundance that, that, you know, this he argues is actually one of the things that horrifies people. Hmm. Right. And, you know, he, so he says, we've reached a stage where the very word socialism calls up a picture of airplanes, tractors, and huge glittering factories of glass and concrete. So, <clears throat> um, and he says that, you know, part of what disgusts people is this kind of machine worship, right? So, as I said, it's kind of interesting that, you know, as I recall from sort of 10 or 15 years ago, this, uh, you know, th this, um, idea of that, you know, the realization of socialism is sort of concomitant with, you know, the full realization of, of technological advancement, like that seemed to not be 
something people talked about so much. Then you had, you know, fully automated luxury communism. (laughs) (laughs) And you had a, you know, you had a few books, you know, published by Verso and so on in the past sort of five to seven years, I guess, that that sort of brought this back. Mm. And um, you also had this like accelerationist, you know, the um, I'm trying to remember who the the authors of that were, but the, this accelerationist manifesto that was maybe from like 2013, 2014. Mm. So that so there was an attempt to kind of revive this idea, you know, and uh, you know that that you know, and this is something you and I have talked about before, but you know, it kind of goes back to this time when actually the mainstream of sort of opinion, you know, sort of centrist opinion was very bullish on technology and and sort of the the wonders brought about by silicon valley right and so Mm. um it it was before the kind of souring on the tech industry that you saw actually both kind of on the left and the right and but then you had these kind of um these you know sort of verso loft marxist types kind of reclaiming this idea that you know no actually like the the real um you know, political, um, the, the, the only way to realize, you know, technologically created abundance is through socialism. And the only way to realize socialism is through technologically created abundance. So, you know, it, it, it kind of came back on the scene a bit. Mm. Um, I, I was never really sure, like how much anybody believed that. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, but was, you know, it was it, a it, bit, it was a bit inconsistent or half-hearted or something, wasn't it? Because it's like, you know, they they sort of do the green thing for three years and then they do the spaceships thing for a year and then they go back to being greens again. <laughs> right. So, I mean, part of the reason why this had kind of died out was, you know, I mean, if you, I mean, it was basically environmentalism, right. That, mm. um, you know, if you go back to like the old American left, you have, you know, Woody Guthrie writing songs about the wonders of like these dams <clears throat> that are being built under the Works Progress Administration and so on. And, you know, that this kind of, um, you know, the, the sort of wonders of technological progress, right? Whereas then, you know, once you get the 60s, everybody's lamenting how these dams are like killing all the salmon and mm. so on and so forth. So, you know, there is this that, you know, there, there develops this tension within leftism, which is basically on one hand that you have um, this set of doctrines, you know, going back to Marx that really do tie um, the, the possibility of socialism or communism directly to um, the, the full realization of sort of industrial society, right? Um, and the, the creation of abundance that will meet um, meet all needs. And then on the other hand, you have environment, you know, you have the kind of environmental awakening of the 60s and 70s where, you know, the sort of um, the, the sort of romantic concerns that, you know, had existed since the late 18th century or so with the the sort of horrifying destruction wrought by industrialization become, um, you know, become a sort of standard position on the sort of left of center. Um, and, and then oddly you have, you know, whereas like, 
you know, environmental concerns were in some ways kind of a conservative, um, a, a, you know, more of a conservative ideology prior to mm. that. Um, like the, the great sort of conservationists of a hundred years ago in the U S were basically kind of Republican wasp, um, mm. types. Right. Um, but you know, then the right interestingly sort of becomes, you know, into like burning all the coal and yeah, you know, yeah. And just, um, and all of that. So there's an interesting sort of flip there. And then, you know, what you have with people like the sort of fully, fully automated luxury communism people is this, you know, they have to get into this idea of green technology, right? They have to like, yeah, to, um, to, to resolve, you know, to marry the two kind of, whereas, and, whereas, and also to introduce post-work. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. You know, whereas in some ways China is sort of, you know, the, I mean, continues to really be the, the pursuers of this, of this vision. Right. Mm. Um, and, you know, so um, Orwell's sort of critique of this is that, you know, this isn't <laughs> like that the idea, I mean, I mean, we can talk about this in terms of post-work, but like, the idea that people actually want a world in which they don't have to work it like he, he, he argues that most people actually find this kind of horrifying. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, if you think about like, even in that space of time that you've described all of the, um, moving over and back from one vision to the other, you know, I think that people correctly intuit that if you are left, if um, people like this have power uh, to plan society, then you are at the whim of their, you know, very changeable um, plans at, at all times, you know, uh, so, you know, even something like housing, like that whole machines for living idea, right? And people talk about all the very beautiful housing in Britain that was torn down and, um, you know, the, the, the very big uh, kind of brutalist pieces that were put up and now people think they're ugly and they're being taken down. And so, like, you're kind of constantly, you, you can never be left alone. You're kind of constantly... Um, being being pushed around based on the kind of changing visions of these priestly people, you know, who who can change as quickly as the fashions in the verso loft, like the the fashions of ideas in the verso loft, like they can they can go from one of these things to the other, um, and everyone just has to has to completely reshape their existence. And nobody knows if it's going to work out or if it's going to be a disaster, you know, but they have to impose the, the rational vision on society and they'll probably be dead by the time it doesn't, it, it's a disaster. So no, they, they won't have to answer for it, you know? Yeah. And I mean, there's also this kind of, um, you know, th th there's an aspect of his criticism here that reminds me of um, of Dostoevsky's uh, uh, Notes from Underground, 
right? Where the, the sort of opening part of that, which is, you know, kind of this <clears throat> expression of horror, you know, he's, he's talking about the Crystal Palace, right? Mm. And the, the great sort of London exhibition. Um, and, you know, it, there's just kind of this horror of, you know, the prospect of a kind of total, you know, kind of mechanization and rationalization of the world, right? Mm. So I think this is sort of interesting in relation to, on one hand, he's kind of horrified by the way that mechanization and industrialization have sort of produced these, these bizarre kind of irrationalities in the first part, but then there's almost a kind of apposite horror at the, or, I mean, and it's, you know, here, I think he's, he's also trying to hypothesize why this kind of futurism actually doesn't appeal to people. Right. And that, mm. you know, that, that there is something actually, um, there, there, there is another kind of horror that, that this kind of vision incites. And, you know, I think another point is, you know, he, he kind of um, talks about, you know, that <clears throat> there are all of these things that, you know, we like, I mean, it's interesting. There, there were people kind of writing about this like 10 years ago in relation to the tech, like this um, journalist named Nicholas Carr, who wrote a couple kind of early books that were critical of the, of, of big tech um, mm. and the sort of supposed improvements it was bringing about. Right. And, you know, just this idea that um, getting machines to do everything for you is not, um, is not, does not, you know, or, or it entails certain losses, right? Mm, mm. That, that there are certain values to be found in, you know, skilled handiwork and things like that, that, mm. you know, are simply, and this, you know, I suppose goes back in some ways to the kind of romantic anti-industrialism that you brought up before of, mm. you know, going back to sort of the Luddites and so on. Mm. But that there's a, there's not only a kind of economic deprivation linked to that, but there's a, um, a kind of, you know, a loss of a sort of um, fundamental humanity that is is manifest in those sorts of activities. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's sort of like a, a contemporary example that comes to mind is the rage, <laughs> the rage that people feel when they're forced to use uh, self uh, checkouts. You know. Um, yeah. And so, and and you complexify these things. Like the whole point originally of this new, like, say, shopping centers and things like that was supposed to make the whole experience less complicated um, so that you did not have to go and find each individual thing. But and and now it's sort of just complicated things to a point where you're just like end up like abandoning your bags and leaving in frustration, you know, like I don't, I would not do that, but like my parents would probably do that, you know, and they constantly complain about having to do this and, you know, using, using automated things that end up requiring more labor, you know, ultimately and things like that. Um, you know, the only good piece of art, I'm thinking of like TV, like movies, like novels, anything that has been made about the COVID period is South Park. Did you see the COVID South Park? No, I haven't. It's really, really good. I think it's two parts. Um, they're long. They're like longer, longer than an average episode. 
And it's actually really, really good and really clever. There's like one guy that refuses to be vaccinated and they're decades in, you know, to the lockdown. Um, and uh, and they're in this dystopia of the future. And what's really interesting about it is basically all the technology is sort of like that. It, it's everything is incredibly annoying to use. And everything is just the same brands, but with a plus or something after it or a super, you know, like something indicating that it's a better version. But like everyone goes through life dealing with this like constant frustration of being presented with things that are supposed to be helpful, but are just really confusing and end up taking longer than doing it yourself. And, you know, and they're all sort of everyone in it is really depressed and they're, they're sort of accepting that like, oh, it's the future now. So this is just the way it's going to be forever, you know? And at one point, like they have to lock down South Park and there's the, the military is there and they're shooting, <laughs> they're shooting people who are trying to run to like a game, a football game or something like that, who are trying to exit South Park. Um, and like, yeah, it was actually the tech, the, the, oh, so like, for example, um, what do you call the thing, the voice, uh, Siri or something like that? Yeah, I can't remember yeah. if it's Siri or if it's something else, Alexa. but it's one of the, yeah. Alexa, yeah, yeah, Alexa, that's it. So uh, one of the guys, I think it might be Kyle, has the, has the Alexa and she appears as a real woman, like beside him in the car. Um, and his, and, and then, but she starts sort of nagging him and stuff. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and so he has this incredibly frustrating relationship with the Alexa and it just goes on like that. And it's like, it's actually really like one of the cleverest, like, um, you know, satires of of the way that technology, the like absurd, kind of like irrational way that technology is going, where there's basically no innovation occurring. It just has the, feeling of newness you know and the constant boasting of progress you know within it um but yeah like it's just a dystopian for people to live in right and i mean this you know relates to a couple of things one is you know it's been interesting for me to see like i've actually you know one person i've kept tabs on is um you know the author of the aforementioned fully automated luxury communism and of course, it turns out he's a sort of hardcore lockdown proponent, right? And I mean, there's some way in which like all of this kind of, you know, that and then the sort of Green New Deal concept, it's like the real project that all of the people who are invested in those things have been invested in is continuing lockdowns and mm. other kinds of restrictions. So, you know, and there are certain continuities, right? Because... Um, you know, on one hand, it is this kind of, well, it's it's essentially this kind of faux post-work society of abundance, right? Where, mm. I don't know, you just sit at your computer at home all day and have, have um, <clears throat> food delivered to you by Insta-surfs. And then, you know, you're also kind of... Um, you know, the, the sort of, you're advocating for the economy to be propped up, you know, there's all the sort of modern monetary theory stuff. Um, so you're advocating basically what you want is for, you know, nobody to have to go to work ever again. And for just, you know, the Fed to keep um, printing money. Mm. So sort of, so it's, it's a weird kind of virtual abundance. It's the weird sort of virtual abundance of monetary policy, mm. which 
you know, has, um, I mean, and I had an episode, that episode recently with Fabio Vigi about this, but, you know, it's, it, it's, it's become the kind of ersatz project of all the people who, you know, were previously advocating these more kind of pie in the sky schemes. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's an interesting sort of bait and switch or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it, but it's also just a kind of, um, you know, it, it's sort of, it's almost like a travesty or parody of all these, these highfalutin ideals that, you know, have been promoted previously. Yeah, I mean, and and even something like automation, you know, I, I still see reports in the news regularly where they say, you know, oh, Germany says they need uh, like a million more workers or something like that. And it's like, I, but wait, I thought... <laughs> I thought that we were, everyone was going to be fired because of automation, you know, like, uh, um, yeah. And, and the thing is like the real economy goes on, you know, like if the real economy doesn't keep turning, like n we all freeze and die of starvation. You know, if the truckers don't deliver the food, we don't eat food. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, the, those people basically, they simply can't, I, I like using the phrase the real economy because I think that no matter what whether you consider yourself like more right leaning or left leaning or whatever, the simple fact of that is something that you have to just keep coming back to uh, because the, those post work people. I mean, it's sort of an obvious thing to say, but it's basically what's going on. They they want themselves to be free of it, but they know perfectly well that the I assume they know perfectly well that the, you know, the, 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 the wheels have to keep turning all the time. And that's the only way that their life is possible. So I have another passage that kind of relates to some of these issues um, that comes towards the end of the book, which relates to all of this stuff about sort of automation and mechanization. Um, so he says, um, you know, it amounts to saying, um, so he's talking about, you know, this idea that we just kind of have to accept um, progress, you know, industrial progress and so on. Um, so it amounts to saying we're soft, for God's sake, let us stay soft, which at least is realistic. As I've pointed out already, the machine has got us in its grip and to escape will be immensely difficult. Nevertheless, th this answer is really an evasion because it fails to make clear what we mean when we say we want this or that. I am a degenerate modern semi-intellectual who would die if I did not get my early morning cup of tea and my new statesman every Friday. Mm -hmm. Clearly, I do not, in a sense, want to return to a simpler, harder, probably agricultural way of life. In the same sense, I don't want to cut down my drinking, pay my debts, take enough exercise to be faithful to my wife, etc., etc. But in another and more permanent sense, I do want these things. And perhaps in the same sense, I want a civilization in which progress is not definable as making the world safe for little fat men. <laughs> These that I've outlined are practically the only arguments that I've been able to get from socialists, thinking book training socialists, when I've tried to explain to them just how they're driving away possible adherence. Of course, there's also the old argument that socialism is going to arrive anyway, whether people like it or not, because of that trouble-saving thing, historic necessity. Um... So anyway, he's, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think, 
I mean, he's again expressing a kind of ambivalence here because he does seem to accept um, technological change and advancement as a sort of fait accompli that you can't really dial back. Um, but at the same time, he, um, you know, essentially his critique here is that if you don't, if you don't acknowledge um, that there are, there are fundamental and real losses that are entailed by that, um, then you're, you're simply not acknowledging, you know, how, how and why people might um, respond to it the way that they do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess like that he has always like that sort of, um, yeah, the common sense kind of, I mean, like that's like the most hated thing, right. By, uh, <laughs> by leftists, if you, if you say common sense in many ways, like their ultimate war is against the concept of common sense. Um, because it's always that, no, we have to show that everything that seems like common sense is socially constructed and therefore malleable uh, and therefore, and also potentially wrong. So it can be gotten rid of um, as if something being a social construct, like means that it's wrong anyway, you know, um, but that is like the, probably like the, the central theme of the whole thing in a way. Um, and yeah, he, but he sticks with, he, he, he does in all of his writing, there is this sense that there is value in common sense. And um, that's definitely one of the reasons why, why he continues to be disliked, you know, by them. Yeah. And this, um, you know, relates to his, I mean, he, he does say that, you know, he, the way, at least the way that he thinks about socialism, he regards it as common sense, mm. right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and then, I mean, it's also worth noting he, I mean, he has his own, you know, in a sense, he, he kind of has his advice for how socialism should be um, promoted or propagandized, right? Mm. <clears throat> And one of the main ways that he, um, that one of the main arguments that he makes is that it should stand for opposition to tyranny, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you know that should should stand for basically freedom and opposition to tyranny. Mm. But you know, I think this kind of goes back to you know perhaps <laughs> maybe the way in which the person who said he didn't define it was was correct is that you know I mm. I, I don't I don't feel he. Um, he develops that argument fully, mm. um, but it does relate to something I wrote about recently, which was um, this new David Graeber book, or posthumous David Graeber book about mm. um, a sort of human prehistory. Mm. Have you have you come across? No, this? I haven't. I I've and seen people talking about it, but I haven't read it. Yeah, it's it's extremely it's it's definitely worth a read, although it's quite long. Um, but you know, to me, the most stunning sort of irony of it is that, I mean, of course, he's a um, self-described um, anarchist, uh, but, you know, he, but it was extremely well received by all the sort of socialist publications and so on. Um, but, you know, he, in a way, sort of defines his politics similarly, right, that 
you know, the most important sort of political value is, um, is the right to disobey, right? Is the right to um, freedom in the sense of, you know, not having someone else, whether it's a boss or um, a state official or whatever, tell you what to do, right? Mm. Without, um, <clears throat> without your consent. And I mean, the thing I found most astonishing about this argument, and it's it's being well received, was that, you know, basically all the publications that, I mean, this kind of goes back to the COVID point, but all the publications that gave him these sort of glowing reviews are, of course, in lockstep with all of these mandates, right? Mm. And then what's even stranger is that, um, you know, somebody when I was posting about this, or maybe after I wrote the review of the book, somebody shared with me an interview that, you know, cause he died in, I think like August of 2020. Hmm. So shortly before his death, he gave this interview in which he basically said that, um, you know, well, um, you know, when you have like doctors and public health offici- officials tell you what to do, you know, there, it's not really arbitrary authority because what they're saying is based on scientific evidence. And mm. so if you reject that, then you're simply, you know, irrationally rejecting the facts or something along those lines. Mm. So, <laughs> so essentially he's creating this kind of bizarre loophole by which after writing this book, that's sort of, you know, the, um, the fundamental argument of which is that, you know, the, 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 the sort of bedrock political value is the right to disobey Mm. And then, you know, basically saying, well, but it's different if it's public health authorities you know, telling you what to do and making mm. you stay at home and, um, you know, making you uh, get certain injections and things like that. And so I think this, again, goes to this kind of notion of the kind of priestly, a kind of priestly managerial elite, right, mm. which, um, you know, is an you know, whether in the form of socialism or not, um, you know, is and and has been kind of inserting itself into power structures in a way that, you know, allows it to exercise authority in certain ways that, that you know, can still allow it kind of plausible deniability by which it can pretend to not be, mm. you know, simply a sort of another arbitrary power structure, right? And oh, so- yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, I, I've seen lots of, you know, anarchists and things like that who <laughs> are for lockdowns, you know, and are for like a, a, a really, really heavy, like, a, you know, state, like a force being used, you know? Um, and so, okay, what do you, what, what does that mean? Like, how can we interpret that? I mean, is there any, uh, I mean, is it just a case of like Malcolm would say the, the purpose of leftism is to feather the nests of leftists, which <laughs> is one of his funny lines. Uh, is it just that? I mean, is it just that they are there, they empower themselves because that's what people do? Yeah, I mean, and I guess the only things I would add is that you have these kind of two, you know, so I, I think of it in terms of a kind of evolution of, of, of power. And I guess here I'm thinking in a more kind of 
uh, Foucauldian way, maybe, mm. right? That that sort of, um, you know, I think what you, you know, and the other thing I've written about recently is this kind of odd fusion of technocracy with kind of moralizing, mm. which again ties back to this sort of priestly um, status, right, of this class, that it's it's on one hand kind of claiming to be you know, purely enforcing the dictates of, you know, the science, capital S, but, but then on the other hand, it's, it's, it's means of, of doing that often takes the form of this kind of fanatical moral exhortation, right? Mm. And so, you know, both of these are ways of kind of denying that they are exercising power in a sense, because, Mm. you know, in the first case, as Graeber basically argued, it's like, well, it's not really power. You're just you're just kind of um, telling people what the facts are, and then if they don't want to get in line with that, well, they're just irrational. So that's not an expression of any right or freedom, right? It's just it's just pure, uh, you know, orneriness or something. Mm, mm. And then on the other hand, it's like, well, you know, we're not. Um, we're not tyrannical authorities. We're just saying that you don't have the right to literally murder people, right? Mm, mm. By going outside or not wearing a mask mm. or whatever, right? So it's it's this kind of, um, it's it's this two-pronged sort of um, self-justification of, of this type of authority, right? Where on one hand, it's like, um, it's it's merely enforcing the the known scientific facts. And on the other hand, it's, you know, positioning itself as the, the the defender of life itself right Mm. um and so that is a very kind of um you know it's 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 very in line i i argue with you know sort of how um various theorists like foucault sort of saw um saw power evolving Mm. um but you know i guess the other thing that's interesting here is that it, it does it does tie it back to this notion of a kind of priestly um a kind of priestly caste, right? Mm. That that, um, <clears throat> that I think we're already getting a sense of out of Orwell and that, you know, I mean, it's interesting, right? He, you know, w- w- with the sort of post-war era, you know, this would have to be another episode probably, but, you know, he does kind of have a, a critique of the managerial state, <clears throat> you know, at the same time that like James Burnham is is developing his, Right mm. in in um in nineteen in nineteen eighty four right where it's it's not really just that he imagines um sort of you know Soviet communism to take over the world it's that he he sees this kind of managerial mode of government um becoming the the default one and kind of emerging in different ways in different um in different polities mm. but but nevertheless kind of um you know, essentially um, <clears throat> establishing itself almost inexorably, um, you know, across the world. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see um, the this kind of clash going on with truckers. It's actually happening all over the world. There was um, there was one in Ireland as well. Uh, they bunch of truckers sort of broke I, I believe they actually broke they were unionized but they broke away uh from the main union and they sort of um I think they just basically had a Facebook page and they just d- decided 
that they were going to block this main port into Dublin and just park the trucks. And they were saying that basically fuel costs have been going up and up and up and up. Uh, and uh, it's become almost impossible to live uh, on the amount of money that you actually end up with when you have paid for all the various vehicle things that can go wrong and, and the fuel costs. Um, but, but again, like how are fully automated luxury eco-communism how are they going to get their utopia if people do not pay the fuel tax, you know? <laughs> and so what was so funny was that when I looked at the reports, like people always talk about the left-wing media and things like that, right? When I looked at the newspaper reports, and these guys did, were not doing the vaccine thing, right? So they didn't even have that excuse. There was nothing else. It was just about the fuel. And when I looked at the papers, the same papers that will just regurgitate uh, kind of um, NGO speak and all the stuff that is coming from the left, you know, in that sense, they were totally hostile to them. No sympathy whatsoever. And these guys were saying, look, we can't even make money. Like, this is so bad that we're, it's not even profitable to do this. And their attitude, the attitude, the, the newspapers just went and interviewed a load of annoyed people. They interviewed shopkeepers who were annoyed, politicians who were annoyed, um, you know, various NGO people who were annoyed, eco people who were annoyed. And they didn't even interview in many cases, in any of the cases that I read, the truckers themselves. Um, and when I went looking for some kind of quotes or some kind of where I could find like their perspective, uh, that's what they said. They said the fuel tax is now so bad that we can barely make money doing this. And so those people who, you know, are being quoted in this article and who are writing this article, as I said, you know, would starve and freeze to death without these truckers. And, and they are so unaware or so unconcerned with this fact of the real economy that they their attitude is like, oh, well, you can, you know, the entire trucking industry is about to collapse, big deal, you know? <laughs> I don't want to be inconvenienced for one day, for a few hours. I will be enraged and I will go to my journalist friend and tell them how enraged I am. And so that's kind of their, that is their like way of seeing the world where they just like are above the real economy. They, and, and so to them, they can, uh, they can swing wildly from like romanticism to technological utopia but as long as it involves the real economy being absent and or unseen, they don't want to see it. They don't want to know it's there. They don't want to have to deal with the people who run it, you know, in any way. And that's like, that is basically usually the vision, you know? Right. And, you know, this is why when you see these kind of um, demands that, you know, basically the, the whole economy locked down until there's zero COVID, I mean, it really is premised on this, this denial of what, you know, mm. lockdowns actually looked like mm. and, and of the idea, you know, of, of just the fact that, um, you know, there are these other systems that have to work in order for you to like get your food every day and things like that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure I've mentioned it a couple of times to you because I'm always telling people to read it. Um, Richard Barbrook's book, Imaginary Futures. Did I ever talk to you about that? 
I'm not sure. I can't remember. It's really excellent. It's 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 one of the books that has had the most impact on me that I can think of. I mean, it would definitely be in like a top five or something. And interestingly, he starts with that, you know, the Crystal Palace thing. Well, he, he kind of looks at this whole history of, of what became the World's Fair, same concept, basically. And he's kind of saying that there's this, it, it's like a repetition of the same theme of an imaginary future. And always the image of the future is a workerless world, a, a one world with no workers. So the global village was what they, Daniel Bell, uh, who, who talked about the post-industrial society, he and others um, took on the McLuhan idea of the global village as a way, but, but Barbara is basically saying, this is just repeating the same formula over and over again. You know, it's really interesting. But yeah. on an, another point, just while I think of it, one thing I always wonder is, what is the pistachio shirt about? uh, clearly it has some significance to people who are around at the time that they would have known what he was referring to do you have any idea i don't i don't um we should ask like an older we should let's see i know a few like older british people so maybe i'll ask them (laughs) yeah if if any if anyone listening knows (laughs) yeah uh, yeah tell us because yeah, I was thinking, does he mean khaki kind of? Because that would make a certain amount of sense, you know? Right. It, right. it was like our army, you know, surplus kind of if they were trying to look like. Yeah. You know, that would make sense. But I don't know. Pistachio yeah. shirts. Yeah, we should look into that. Yeah. Um, so why don't we wrap up? But first, I just wanted to ask you for um, listeners who maybe haven't been following your Substack. You know, you've been kind of going in some interesting directions there that, you know, might not have been um, things people anticipated from your earlier work. So Mm -hmm. would you uh, just briefly talk about some of the stuff you've been writing about recently? Yeah, well, it is a little bit all over the place um, because, well, because it's Substack, I kind of get to write about whatever I feel like. So uh, the last thing I wrote was actually a very practical co-authored thing, which was about um actually like building the real economy in ireland the the because uh it's you know we're kind of um a car park silicon valley of a silicon valley colony yeah exactly yeah yeah and so uh as always happens when you have this kind of like free trade relationship the kind of native economy died basically like there's it's not, it's something like 95% of the exporting economy is foreign owned is multinationals. And so, you know, now there's this problem of like, what if this model dies? What if this falls apart? We're actually really screwed. I mean, we have, we have some infrastructure of a modern economy, you know, like obviously roads and water and all things like that. But, um, in terms of the, the, the productive economy, we, we basically have none. I mean, almost none. And so that's a really dangerous position to be in. So me and this guy, Peter Ryan, uh, have been trying to deal with that. And we're trying to be practical minded about it and come up with sort of practical ideas about how we would resolve, how we could possibly, you know, uh, start to think about what to do in the situation that that, you know, that happens. 
um, the the old model falls apart. Well, it, it will fall apart, but it's just a case of like, we don't know whether it's going to be a crash or something slower. Um, and then I've also written things that are just completely nothing to do with that and completely unlike that. I wrote a piece recently called Unremarkable Clothes. <laughs> and I was trying to figure out why it is that people, that in a time of abundance and particularly a, a global fashion industry that's bigger than it's ever been, uh, why we all dress in this sort of like gray sweatpants sort of way, you know, like we, we actually look really similar to each other. There, there's actually a very little individual expression. So it's not a question of, you know, most of us think that this time is characterized by individualism. And so basically I think people are dressing as if they have a VR headset on, you know, like people are dressing as if they, as if nobody can perceive them, you know, in a way. Um, and, and then some other things I kind of suggested, but I'm not sure if they're true. I just sort of pose them as questions. Like, is this a, is this a, an expression of some kind of, um, humility, like we're trying to express humility or is it, um, something else? But it, it is interesting that for all of our supposed individualism, like that's not coming out. If you, if you just like were an alien and looked at society right now, you would never, it looks like 1984, actually the movie adaptation, right? Everyone is just dressed in gray cotton, basically most of the time. Um, if you take like a random street, like view. Um, and um, then I'm also looking at, uh, I'm also looking at this kind of, this other tradition, right? This counter tradition in economics, which is the national economy system that is most closely associated with Friedrich List. Um, and how I sort of became interested in this was my co-author of those pieces, Peter Ryan, did, did a a, um, a a master's thesis on the on on. It was actually on kind of how revolutionaries, successful revolutionaries, dealt with the question of finance. And then from and then within that thesis, there's this interesting bit that one of the Irish revolutionaries, one of the really brilliant minds of it, Arthur Griffith, was very influenced by Friedrich List. And he was kind of like evangelizing, like everyone must, everyone in Ireland must read Friedrich List. So then I started reading him at that. And then I discovered, like, wow, every literally every successful uh, like world leading economy followed the Lystian model. America did it, Japan did it, Germany did it. And interestingly, most interestingly of all, Britain did it, but then they pretended that they didn't do it. <laughs> and they preached to the world the opposite doctrine, you know? So, you know, the, they, they, they preached the idea of like uh, free trade basically, but in fact they had done what every successful. So I was thinking, how can I not have known this? How can I got, have gotten to this age being so interested in these subjects and never have encountered this stuff? Um, and what you also find is that, uh, I, I mean, I'm going to write more about it, so maybe we can even go into it in detail at some point in the future. But, you know, not only is it the only successful method, but the, the man who really like gave the world the kind of published the secret sauce, basically, of imperial success before they became empires, um, 
you know, and of course, um, the, the British Empire, you know, like um, uh, banned the colonies from from industrializing for the, this very reason, because they knew that it was the only way. Um, and so that also kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier about the real economy, you know, that there's this kind of endless conspiracy to hide the real economy, you know, to wish that it wasn't there, to hide what it's doing, to downplay its significance, you know, and then you learn that actually, well, that's actually what the empires did. They taught the colonies, oh, this doesn't matter, you don't need this, you know, you can just, um, you can just have like in that book um, that you mentioned, the Turner book, um, whatever it is from counterculture to cyberculture, that's a theme in that book too, where he talks about how like appropriate technologies, how these kind of savior tech people taught uh, the, the, the underdeveloped economies of the world that, oh, you can just leapfrog that whole part of history and you can just have appropriate technologies instead um so yeah that actually does kind of tie in in a way um but it's a very interesting counter history and what you really it it, it just opens up a totally different way of seeing history because then you kind of also realize that you know the bolsheviks just did exactly the same thing as well you know they called it marxism but they did exactly the same thing they understood that they're that the Lysian way is the only way. <laughs> There's no other way to go from poverty to development. Um, and and yet, like even the most pe people who are obsessively political, who read everything, who are really interested in these questions, can go their whole lives without even knowing the name Friedrich List. I think that's just amazing. So that's kind of my obsession at the moment. Um, so if you if you <laughs> if you subscribe to my Substack, you're going to learn a lot of stuff about Friedrich List and related things, and also random things like clothes. Yeah, and I mean, interestingly, he was also you know sort of explicitly criticized by Marx and Engels, right? Mm. Who who were, as I recall from reading you on this, um, you know, who were actually themselves much more advocates of the free trade. Um, position, right? Yeah, well, I mean, this is the classic uh, chessboard thing that Orwell was talking about. Marx was kind of, they thought, well, no, if this Friedrich List character gets his way, then people will just uh, develop and be wealthy and happy without us, <laughs> you know, and they won't need us. So if, if you have just the, the total baptism of fire of like free trade, just ripping through the world, um, and, and you don't have this kind of German school, which of course Marx knew very well, right? Because that was the, that was what he was swimming in. Um, and, but no, he, he sort of want, he, he, yeah, he, he said free trade is better because it will produce the revolution we want. Cause that's what the chess board like way of viewing the world is, you know? Right. And I mean, it's, I mean, a few, a few things. I mean, there. It seems like there is an interesting continuity with your um, your previous uh, piece from a couple of years ago on open borders, right? Mm. Where where you kind of linked the um, ideological attachment to open borders with the sort of free trade doctrines of the mm. 
of the U.S. you know sort of informal empire post um, you know post Cold War. Yeah, and you know that. <laughs> I mean, and then a few other points. You know, it's interesting thinking of this from Ireland, which you know essentially goes from being you know, one for, you know, from sort of feudalism to neo to sort of Silicon yeah. Valley neo-feudalism, right? Um, yeah. Without the intermediary stage. And yeah, and so, so that's why the- <laughs> they, they saw it as their perfect, like, guinea pig kind of, you know what I mean? Or uh, their perfect model, because they said, look, this is successful. You don't need to, to do any of this other stuff. You can just leapfrog this. And so we can now do this in the third world. Right. And so... So of course that means Ireland goes from being, um, you know, ruled by one by the Catholic priesthood to being ruled by the sort of, <laughs> you know, the tech industry neo feudal yeah. sort of. Oh PMC my god! It, 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 it's it's so bad. The PMC priesthood thing is so bad here. It's shocking. I mean, I I you know it's very it's very I think it's always a really good experiment to change your habits of finding information uh, you know and just to see like what would it be like if I just watch tv or you know if I just listen to radio or something like that and so I was sitting here with my dad watching tv and you know some news talk show came on and it was like they were talking it was all these women and they were like you need to be better allies you know (laughs) we have to it's not enough just to be anti-racist you have to be an active ally and like they were just repeating this on Irish television. And I was imagining all these grannies and granddads watching this being like, what on earth are they talking about? And I said to my dad, do you know what they were just talking about? Does this make any sense to you? <laughs> and he just said, oh, well, at my age, I just tuned them out. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Um, but but all too revealing of our uh, the current state of the world. So... <laughs> yeah. In any case, uh, let's leave it there. Uh, people should check out your Substack, obviously, and um, you know, perhaps we can talk again about uh, Friedrich List or 1984 or you know, <laughs> some combination of those. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. So yeah. So thanks for coming on again. Yeah, it's great to be on. <laughs>